following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Good morning. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. And that song from 1985, which is Sting, the Russians, is probably as poignant today as it was back then. If we just replaced a couple of names, Gustav and Reagan with Putin and Biden, I think we could probably say it was almost identical. Anyway, we're going to be talking about um, some mega risk events this week. We will be speaking with science author Julian Cribb about his work, A Matter of Survival, The Human Existential Emergency, The Challenge and Its Possible Solutions. Julian Cribb is an Australian author and science communicator. He is a fellow of the UK Royal Society for the Arts, the Australian Academy for Technological Science and Engineering, and the Australian National University Emeritus Faculty. His published work includes, over, wait for it, 9,000 articles, 3,000 science media releases and 12 books. He's also received 32 awards for journalism. Makes us feel a bit inadequate here. (laughs) He was nominated for the ACT Senior Australian of the Year Award in 2019 and he is the co-founder of the Council for Human Future. He was appointed as the member of the General Division of the Order of Australia in 2021 and for the past two decades his main literary focus has been on the self-inflicted existential emergency faced by humanity. As a grandfather, Julian is deeply concerned about the future of our descendants, what they will face unless humanity as a whole acts with urgency to overcome all of the mega risks. And I think this couldn't be a more appropriate topic this week. Welcome to the show, Julian. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you, Zena. So I guess we would probably best get started um, with a little bit about what got you into this work. Like you've had a long, long history of being uh, involved, writing about science as a journalist and being involved in things. So what led you down this path? Yeah, well, I started to notice mainly in the 1990s. I mean, I wrote my first climate change article in 1976. But in those days, people weren't sure how serious climate change was. Um, just that it was going to affect farmers, basically, and that was going to affect the food supply. But by the 1990s, I was in contact with a lot of scientists, both climatologists and ecologists particularly, and they were observing. Every, every day they would go in the office and they would process data, information, that was showing that the world was going to hell in a handcart, you know, that climate change was getting worse, that species were disappearing, you know, that pollution and poisons were spreading, um, that soil was drifting away, that uh, water was poisoned. So, you know, I mean, all of this data was coming, uh, you know, onto their desks and they were having to examine it. And they were rather a depressed mob, even in the (laughs) 1990s. So I started to wonder, you know, is this right? Because scientists generally only look at one aspect they're a specialist in, in, in one particular area of human knowledge. Um, and uh, I, I wondered whether, you know, are we really, you know, are we really doomed kind of thing? Um, because I was meeting a lot of other people who were saying, oh, gee, I, I, I don't think we've got much of a future. This looks like the end of history to me. And I didn't know whether these people were right or wrong. But I'm a journalist and my job is to find out. So I thought, well, I can find out. I can look at the best science from all around the world read the works of the best scientists, talk to the best scientists, and so on. And I can ascertain just how grim things really are and what should be done about them. And I did that. 
And uh, in 2017, I published a book called Surviving the 21st Century, where I identified 10 major threats, 10 catastrophic risks <clears throat> that now face humanity. Not just climate change. There are nine other risks besides climate change. We're in the middle of another one, a pandemic. Uh, you know, we're, we're on the brink of another, a nuclear war. <clears throat> so there's all these risks, but they're all coming together at the same time, and they're all produced and driven by the same forces. They're, they're all man-made risks, uh, and they're driven largely by the pressures of overpopulation and overconsumption. Uh, the, those are the, the, the big drivers. So the question is, how do we get out of this hole that we've dug ourselves, or we are digging ourselves? In? And that is the, you know, the subject of my work to this very day, uh, is answering that question. What can ordinary people do in their lives to prevent these mega risks from consuming humanity. Mm. Well, I was listening to some of um, your short talks that you've had up on various websites, and one of the things you mentioned was that, you know, in trying to ameliorate some of these risks, we have to make sure that in solving one problem, we don't make another problem worse. Uh, I believe we're sort of at that stage now where everything is so interconnected and, you know, they're all piggybacking off each other. That, you know, we, as you can see, just in the last two years, we've gone from bushfire to pandemic to international conflict. Um, so, floods. Sorry? Don't forget the no, floods. No, no, that would be all under the climate heading. But, um, yeah, again, you, it's how do you solve one problem without making another problem worse, I believe, was one of the questions you were asking. Well, to me, that's the most important question. Uh, I mean, all of these risks are technology-driven. I mean, when we started burning coal, it was a good thing, you know. It kept our houses warm. It powered our steam engines, what have you. You know, it, it may have uh, um, made the air a little bit unbreathable, but, uh, but it was basically a good thing. But it was when we started burning coal on such a vast scale, when the human population went to two, four, five, seven, eight billion people, and the coal burning just got out of hand, that coal became a threat to the human species. And it's true of nearly all of our technologies. When they, when they take over, they just get out of hand. And, and they, what was a, a benign thing becomes a danger to us. <clears throat> and so we have to do something about those threats. We have to anticipate them, uh, and, 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 and we have to head them off at the pass. Now, unfortunately, humans tend to think in silos. And people constantly say to one another, well, if there's 10 threats, which one should we solve first? You know, I mean, that's a really stupid way to think about these things. You know, This is a complex system, and you can't solve one threat at a time. Because while you're solving one threat, all the others are going to get worse, and your solution may actually make them worse. So you have to have solutions that are cross-cutting. So that really is the challenge that we've got now. And, you know, I'm finding it very hard to get anybody, even scientists, to appreciate the necessity for thinking in this very broad way about all of the threats and what drives them and the cross-cutting solutions we need that make nothing worse. Mm. Yeah. Why do you think that would be, Julian, that they're not open to that, listening to that? Well, scientists uh, stick within their disciplines, right? So if you're a climate scientist, you know a lot about the climate, but perhaps not so much about, about ecology or, or so much about uh, you know, other, uh, other aspects or about food. For example, I, I find that many people who are trying to solve these big problems don't know anything about food, uh, how food is produced, its impact on the world, and so on. So, I mean, if I could give you an example, the human jawbone 
is the most dangerous um, instrument on the planet. It's destroying life left, right and centre. It's, it's emptying the oceans. It's destroying uh, 75 billion tonnes of topsoil every single year. Um, you know, it's consuming water like there's no tomorrow. This is our food supply I'm talking about. Now, if you don't solve the food problem, you cannot solve the extinction problem. The thing that's driving extinction is human food production, chiefly. That's the main thing. Spreading poisons doesn't help. Uh, but spreading poisons is part of our food production. I mean, we, agriculture worldwide spreads 5 million tonnes of highly specialised poisons that are killing bees and all sorts of things left, right and centre. So you can see you've, you've got to address the food problem because people need food every single day. If you don't solve the food problem, you can't solve the extinction problem. You can't solve the extinction problem by, by putting national parks everywhere. Just can't be done because all the other human impacts, including climate, are going to come to bear on it. So you, you have to solve all these problems simultaneously. Yeah, I might just run through the, these 10 points that you've, you've come to. Uh, mass extinction, resource depletion, weapons of mass destruction, climate change, universal toxicity, food crises, population and urban expansion, pandemic disease, dangerous new technologies, and self-delusion. So that's an interesting and, and pretty varied list. Now, you, you've come to the sort of common denominator of that population and consumption. Um, what do you reckon drives those? Well, uh, most all life has a, has a natural tendency to copy itself, okay? We can go right the way back to microbes and they're busy copying themselves as hard as they can go. And we've got their DNA in our DNA. So we're just obeying the, 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 the natural order of biology, which is to reproduce yourself. Uh, unfortunately, we've had a couple of boosters in the last 70 years. First of all, the Green Revolution. I mean, I, when the Green Revolution started, there were one-third of the world's population was, was malnourished. Uh, a billion people were, mal were malnourished. So the, when, we, when we brought in all these wonderful crops and things like that, we actually stopped an awful lot of children dying in infancy. Right? The nourishment that was provided worldwide by the Green Revolution is what drove the expansion of the human population. People were having five or six or even 14 kids, you know, but most of them died in, in, in infancy. So, you know, that situation has changed with, with, with two things, with, with agriculture, modern technical agriculture, and with vaccines and, and antibiotics. That was the other thing that, so we, we stopped people dying of, of um, infectious disease, basically, to a large degree. And those two things caused the population to balloon from two and a half billion, which is what it was when I was born, to the current nearly eight billion. So it'll be eight billion next year, 2023. So, you know, you can see the population has tripled, almost quadrupled in my lifetime. Yeah, that, that's a frightening thing to think about every exponentially, every decade. It's going to get, um, you know, so much worse. We probably can't even fathom what it would look like if there's nothing, if there's no intervention. Well, it'll look a lot worse than the Ukraine. You can take it from me. Well, we're already uh, seeing the, the food issues that are potentially coming out of there and, and the concern around just in that one pocket, how that's going to impact us globally. Yeah, and, you know, if you scrape away all the, all the politics and, and imperialism in the Ukraine, underneath it all, 
is is a deep-seated Russian insecurity about their food supply. They don't have a very reliable food supply. The Ukraine has been their food basket for centuries. Basically, the Ukraine is a very good climate for growing grain. And, uh, you know, the, this mud that um, the Russian tanks are getting bogged in at the moment is, is, is all very fertile soil that, that grows wonderful food. And one of the reasons that, that uh, Putin wants to take over the Ukraine is to secure the Russian food supply. And this is a very common motive for a war in human history. Why did the Germans invade Russia? The answer, you have to go right the way back to 1926 when Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, and he announced there that basically Germany had starved during World War I. He never wanted Germany to starve again. The easy way to stop Germany starving was to take over the Russian and Ukrainian grain belt. So the, the purpose of the Germans launching World War II was to take over the Russian grain belt. And, uh, and and remove the Russians and, and replace them with, with German farmers. And you can find that in authoritative histories, that the, the, the German war motive was to acquire food-growing lands to the east of Germany. And the Germans have been pushing into the east for, for 700 years, um, 800 years, but, but, but uh, they'd never pushed quite as hard as, as this time. And countries like Poland were just, you know, in the way. Uh, they just got run over. So, you know, food is behind an awful lot of the conflict in human history. In the last 50 years, two-thirds of the wars that we have fought have, have a, at the back of them a dispute between different groups of people over food, land, and water. So you look at Darfur today, you look at the Horn of Africa, uh, you look at the Congo, you look at uh, Rwanda, uh, all, all of these conflicts, even, even the, the Balkans, you know, is a fight over the, the favourable country. Um, people from different, either religious or political or tribal groups, are disputing over land to survive with. It's, it's well, every, I imagine like every great power in history has gone to war over resources. So we can go back to ancient Rome and they had grain wars there. So Well, ancient Rome became an empire because it fought and defeated the Carthaginians. And that enabled them to take over the whole of the North African coastline. And again, North Africa was to Rome what the Ukraine is to Russia. Mm. A huge grain belt from stretching from Egypt to Morocco. Uh, and the Romans took this over and it fed the empire very well until about the 3rd century, 2nd and 3rd century AD, when you had a couple of plagues that wiped out the farmers um, the the the, uh, the grain supply failed. Now the grain supply was the source of Roman taxation, and when they didn't have enough taxes, they couldn't pay their legions. So all the legions on the on the frontiers, or a lot of them, mutinied, and uh, because they'd been unpaid for months, uh, and and a lot of them joined the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and things like that. So the Roman Empire actually fell because its grain supply failed. So yes, this this. So we've learnt nothing. <laughs> Sorry. So we've learnt nothing <laughs> in our evolution. We're still repeating well, uh, the same mistakes. We, we yes, uh, we, we 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 do tend to forget the lessons of history or to misinterpret them. Um, I mean, I, I think the, the European Community was actually set up in order to prevent Europe from ever starving again, as it had done in World Wars One and Two. I mean, Europe suffered violent starvation 
in, in both world wars, uh, and not just, you know, not just Germany, not just the combatant nations, but the, the non-combatants as well went hungry. And uh, the EC, its very first policy was the common agricultural policy. Why? Because the, the fulcrum of the EC is we shall never starve again. And hopefully we'll never have a war again, you know. But so, so uh, that's why agriculture is so important to Europe. Mm. So, so yeah, it, 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 it's the solid basis of most countries. And so if you take the history of China, I mean, China has been immensely successful agriculturally, but it's had periodic famines. And those famines have caused huge, uh, you know, rebellions, regime changes, all those kinds of things. Uh, so, you know, the Ming Dynasty disappeared because of a public revolt because the food supply failed. So we see these things throughout history. India the same, you know, that, that if you don't successfully manage the food supply, uh, you're in a lot of trouble. Hmm. So another um, aspect of these mega risks you're talking about was AI. So I'm thinking, I read an article just this week um, coming out of the UK in which the UK government's offering farmers there um, £100,000 to give up farming and their farms from what they consider unviable farms. So is this a move towards, you know, giant agro and AI-run farms? Is that what they're thinking? Because, I mean, to me it seems strange that if you've got a food crisis, you don't want your farmers to be packing it in. Yeah, look, um, basically those giant agribusiness type farms are, are, are going to fail um, for all the reasons I've explained in the book called Food or War. Basically, where the world is running out of soil, it's running out of fresh water, uh, the climate that favours agriculture it has gone, it's disappeared. Uh, and uh, basically... So, so, sorry, I had a... You're an in-demand gentleman, Julian. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, look, uh, agribusiness is not the answer to feeding the world. Uh, I've described what the answer is. But we have to take agriculture basically out of the rural areas and put it back in cities um, because the cities have all the nutrients and they have all the water and you can recycle the nutrients and the water. And we also have to go into the deep oceans. We have to stop fishing the seas and start farming the deep oceans. If we do that, we can basically supply ourselves with enough food to, to survive, um, you know, uh, through the peak in human population until we can get the population down low enough for it to be sustainable. Uh, so the, these, these giant uh, AI-driven agribusiness combines are not going to work because they're just using technology to try to bend nature their way, and that doesn't work in the long run. No, absolutely. Well, that was my concern when I saw this thing coming out where they're actually encouraging farmers to give up farming. Um, I was concerned of what their alternative was going to be to replace those small holdings. Well, yeah. well, there's been a process of throwing farmers off the land, which has gone on for more than 150 years. We, we chucked all the crofters off the Scottish Highlands and then all the Irish farmers off their land in, in, in Ireland. Um, in the 1930s, you had the Grapes of Wrath, the Dust Bowl Depression, in which farmers got thrown off their lands and, and, and uh, in America. Um, in Australia, we, we've had two soldier settlement schemes after two world wars, and we had to have a rural adjustment program here, which actually got rid of farmers, paid farmers to leave their, their farms in Australia. So, so the world has been throwing away farmers and their special knowledge and their care and love for the land for a long, long time now. And agribusiness, if we allow it to, will throw a billion farmers off the land and replace them with these intensive agri-factories, which are going to crumble 
when climate change, you know, really comes down on them. I mean, basically, climate change consists of what exactly what we've seen in Australia. Massive floods followed by massive droughts, bushfires, you know, the, 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 the violence of the climatic swings are what makes agriculture impossible. Well, if you go into a monoculture as well and you don't have diversity, you've got a much higher chance of crop failure. Yes, you have, yeah. So, so for all those reasons. But there is a form of farming called regenerative agriculture, which many farmers are now practising or experimenting with around the world, not just in Australia, but in America, in Britain and elsewhere. It's a much gentler kind of farming. It leaves a much less devastating footprint on the planet. It uses far fewer poisons, uh, less fertiliser, all sorts of things. It's a much more integrated, holistic type of agriculture. So agriculture can survive, although it will still take a lot of climate punches. Um, but, you know, in the long run, we also have to find new ways to grow food. And I, I invite you to think about it this way. Agriculture is a Bronze Age technology. We've been doing it for 7,000 years, and we've been doing it for only one reason, because the climate in the last 7,000 years has been unbelievably stable. Right, the climatic fluctuations have been minuscule in the last seven to ten thousand years, and this gave us the stability to start farming, and farming led to the creation of cities, and cities led to the creation of technology. Our whole civilization depends on farming. If you take away the farming, civilization just collapses because nobody can feed themselves. So we have to find a way to replace a form of food production that is now highly vulnerable in the Anthropocene because the climate is no longer stable. It's highly erratic and you're likely to get a flood, a fire and a drought in every single cropping cycle that you do. Well, so, as we have you know, done. <laughs> We've seen the evidence. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. we're, we're seeing it right before our very eyes and refusing to accept it. And you're seeing the fluctuations in the food supply in the supermarkets and things like that that, that, that affect us and, and the prices of food are starting to go through the roof. That's the other thing that happens. We've got a, a world food supply that is all joined up economically, which means that even if they have a crash in the Russian grain uh, production, grain harvest, it affects everybody because it affects the world price of wheat and the world price of wheat affects the price you pay for bread. So, you know, if Argentina has a drought, um, you know, if Australia, we, we've got a very good season at the moment, but we're going to have a bad one sooner or later. There's a, there's a drought on the way once La Nina switches back to El Nino. Uh, you know, so that's going to affect world prices. So it will affect the price of bread in America and Britain as well as in Australia. So you can see these, these things are now starting to affect everybody and the vibrations are getting bigger. That's, that's the alarming thing. And that simply means we've got to be clever. We've got to rethink how we produce food and make it climate-proof and make it sustainable so it simply reuses the nutrients we are currently wasting. Mm. I mean, uh, as you know, we, we, we waste about 40% of the world's food right now. We, we waste enough food to feed 3 billion human beings. We throw it away. It goes in the landfill. It, 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 it goes in the, in the form of sewage down, down the, uh, the, 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 the Manly outfall or whatever, you know. So the Bondi Beach outfall. So we're chucking nutrients to the bottom of the ocean, nutrients we badly need to recycle into food production. 
So we need to reinvent the system of food production. Yeah. And it's easy to do, but, but we're, we're not doing it at the moment very hard. Mm, we'll get into that in a bit of detail a little later, but I want to uh, just duck down to self-delusion there for a, uh, for a moment. Um, I guess Or mass delusion, I think yeah. Julian called it. But we need, to, um, <laughs> we need to really come back to what it is that we're doing and figure out why we're doing it, because we seem to be running around like a bloody a hamster in a wheel, just wanting to go faster and faster and faster because of, I don't know... Um, but yeah, needs. I mean, what about needs? If we don't meet our needs, we die. That's the definition of an actual need, you know, clean air, clean water, clean food. Have, have people forgotten that they've got needs because we've been so affluent? Yes, I think they have. I mean, people have forgotten certainly about their food needs because you could just stroll down to the supermarket and, and top up with food. So we've forgotten that we were ever hungry. Whereas, as I mentioned, in Europe, they've never forgotten that they went hungry and they created a common agricultural policy to prevent it. But Australians have always had a bountiful food supply because we've got so much land relative to our population. Um, so, you know, until this climate thing came along, the Australian food supply was relatively secure. When climate really does start to hit towards the middle of the century, it's going to get insecure. So that is the, that is the first thing that's going to happen. But let's just talk about this delusion thing. Um, up and, I mean, humans are, are very belief-driven animals. And you've got to ask yourself, what is a belief? A belief is a worldview that you hold. And it's, a, it's an amalgam of your ex personal experience, uh, what your parents and school teacher told you, what you read in books, what other people tell you in the pub, and things like that. So you, you form a view of the way, this is the way the world is. And until something comes along and disrupts your belief, you generally cling to that belief. You don't have any, any actual valid data to say that your belief is correct or not. Uh, I mean, for example, if we, if we just take the, the topic of religion, every religion on earth contradicts every other religion. So the chances that they're all wrong are around about 100%. Um, what happened about 300 years ago was that science was developed. And science is the practice of gathering evidence for a particular belief and then testing that evidence and if the evidence doesn't stack up, then obviously the belief is wrong. And you have to do more science to find out what is the correct situation. And science has shown us many, many times that the correct situation, the truth, is sometimes the, the last thing that you actually suspect. And belief, we tend to believe whatever's easy. You know? and, and it has been the introduction, the coupling, of science with religious belief and other forms of belief that has led to the rise of modern society. We, we, we could not have a modern society today without medicine, without electronics, without construction technology, without mining and agriculture. All of these things are products of science, not of belief. And with each one, the science was tested and tested and tested again uh, until we knew that it was a truthful thing, not just a fantasy. So the difference between science and belief, basically, is that science is tested and constantly retested, and you can rely on it. You can rely on the data, because until something big comes along to prove it wrong, it's the truth. So misinformation is basically believing in things that are nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> and I guess it's a, 
it's really proven itself. I mean, even the radio that we're doing here is completely impossible. It's a ridiculous idea. I mean, sound going through the air into somebody's ear on the other side of the world. It's just... Bouncing yeah, off if, the Telstra Tower. Yeah. If, if, if you caught a time machine and you went back to 1850 or 1750 and tried to explain radio to those people, <laughs> they would look at you like you were mad. Yeah. You know, You'd be put people, in bedlam. That would you know, be the end of you. A few people like Lord Kelvin and, and so on might have said, oh, yeah, you might have something there, because they were just starting to test things. And, and they were aware of the existence of gases and the atmosphere and stuff like that. Most people don't even know there's an atmosphere, you know what I mean? It, it's, uh, it's just something you take for granted that you can breathe. Um, so, so it wasn't until we started testing things that science started providing us the evidence now, why misinformation is dangerous is that you cannot solve a problem that you cannot understand. Okay, to solve every problem, doesn't matter what the problem is. The problem might be how do you feed yourself reliably? Problem might be how do you put out a fire? Problem might be, you know, how do you repel the Russians? Whatever that problem is, you have to understand the truth of that problem before you can solve it. Otherwise, you won't be able to solve it. So the danger of misinformation is it leads humanity into this fantasy world. Um, and th this fantasy world is, you know, you're never going to solve them. You're never going to get out of the problems. Now, there are four really dangerous common beliefs worldwide, right? And, and they are money, which is a fictional substance. It doesn't exist in the real world. It only exists in the mind of, minds of humans. Politics, people keep on hoping politics is going to solve our problems, and it never bloody well does, you know, or it, it only makes a half-assed attempt at it because some other politics comes along to contradict it. Uh, religion, because religions are always fighting amongst themselves as to who has the truth. And what I call human narrative, that's the story you get from all those big Hollywood movies. Uh, and the human narrative just gives us a puffed-up sense of our own importance. The hero always wins at the end of the movie, and he gets the girl and, and, and all of that. That's bullshit, you know. I mean, in, in, in real life, the hero often dies. Uh, in real life, you know, things end tragically. Um, it, it, so believing in these kind of fictional fantasies... Uh, whether they're the fiction section in the bookshop or the, the Hollywood movies or whatever, will lead you into a world where you cannot survive because you just you keep on expecting to survive because Hollywood's taught you to believe that you always do. Yeah, and I love how after all these uh, vigilante, mass-murdering heroes go and wreak their destruction, you never get to look at all the people that they've left behind in the streets with all these blown-up things everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, but we know we know what happens because we've had World War Two and World War One, and, and we know how many people are slaughtered in those things when we when we don't understand properly what's going on. So with all of these problems, be it climate change, be it extinction. Um, be it food security, if we don't properly understand the problem, we can't solve it. But if we do properly understand the problem, we've got a very good shot at solving it. And, and we've got the technology, we've got the brains. All we need is the cooperation of the human species. Well, I think that's been, like, on this show, we've, we've actually talked a lot about regenerative farming on this show with various different guests, and we've covered, you know, that particular topic quite frequently. It always comes back to we have the solutions, it's just getting them implemented. 
Yeah, well, um, I'm afraid my view of that tends to be you won't get a lot of these things implemented until people are frightened enough. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm, I'm a newspaper editor, and, and, and I know that bad news sells more than good news does. <laughs> Why? Because people want to know about the bad news so that they can survive, so that they can take measures to ensure their own survival. Um, but basically, you know, unless we, unless we properly understand these problems, we won't, we, we, we won't fix them. And when I say we, I mean the majority of humans and the majority of governments and the majority of businesses and corporations. If they, if they continue to fantasize about the world that we're in, they will lead us to disaster. Now, maybe that's going to happen. Maybe there will be a few big disasters and then we will say, whoa, you know, is this what we really want? So maybe there will be major famines and wars and nuclear conflicts and so forth, and we will pull back from the brink. Yeah, uh, now, I, would, I would hope it could be done rationally by appealing to people's common sense, but you know from the Australian you know, electoral system, common sense is, is not very common. Yeah, it's not, it's not. Uh, what we seem to have is a combination of, of big money and politics which forms what we call the economy, which is essentially the, the system of human organisation that we use to meet our needs. And we, uh, yeah, there, there's a, amongst those people who are in a position to control this, this economy, there seems to be a, an extreme lack of, of understanding of all sorts of things. Uh, even of purpose, they don't... Or lack of willingness to... Well, they, yeah. they've got no idea where the economy's supposed to go, I suppose. Um, well, it should be going to meeting everybody's needs. But If you look at the federal parliament, 96% of the MPs in the federal parliament have no degree or any kind of qualification in science. They only maybe did one or two years of science in high school and they forgot it. Um, so they actually don't understand the problem. They, they don't have the mental equipment to understand what is going on. So they're making decisions on behalf of us, all of us, that are totally in, ill-informed. But at the same time, they've got business whispering in their ear, oh, it'll be much more profitable for us if you do X or Y, if you burn more coal, if you, uh, you know, build a bigger dam or whatever it is. Business can see the short term. Business is about reporting to shareholders, you know, once every six months or 12 months. It doesn't give a, a fig for what is going to happen in 10 or 20 years. It, it doesn't care about your grandkids. So, so business has got this very short-term frame. And if I could just refer back to what I was saying about the, the great fantasies that humans have, this, this money thing. I mean, basically, the amount of money on the planet is infinite. Why? Because every time we run short of money, uh, you know, as we did during the, uh, the, the 2008 global crash, the central banks just print more. They don't get that money out of the vault. They print it out of thin air. They just create $3 trillion, in that particular case, of new money that didn't exist before. And that's why the price of everything goes up, even though its value doesn't, doesn't budge. I mean, the value of your home hasn't changed, just the amount of dollars it takes has changed. So what we're now doing is we're using an infinite amount of money to exploit a finite planet. The Earth has got limits. It's got a limited amount of fish, a limited amount of forests, a limited amount of water, a limited amount of topsoil, a limited amount of minerals, and so on. 
money doesn't acknowledge any of those limits. Money just says, oh, if you've got plenty of money, you can buy more of it. Wherever it comes from, you can buy more and more of it. You can buy more fish until you just empty the oceans. You can afford to waste half the fish you catch. So money is driving us, this, this fantasy thing we've got called money, is driving us to destroy the Earth's productive potential. Mm-hmm. And that is, a, that, is the real, that is the core problem. And, and money, of course, appeals very strongly to greedy people who just want lots of money and they think that that is happiness. Uh, and this is one of the other real delusions. I mean, it's often, I mean, I've traveled the world. I've been to 40 or 50 different countries. It's often struck me that people with little or no money are much happier than people with money um, and, and big houses and things like that. Happiness, human happiness, acceptance of your condition and desire to improve it gently and as you go, you know, it makes people much happier than having a lot of money. I think we've seen multiple examples of that. There was a lovely one with Michael Palin when he was doing his world travels, that documentary, and he was sitting in a... Uh, was a, it wasn't even really a tent. It was basically just a, a structure that was covered with sacks, empty sacks. And the gentleman was there with his family laughing. And Michael Palin says, you know, you, you're, you're, you're so happy. What, what, is, what is great about your life? And he's saying, look, I've got my family. Um, we've got shelter. We've got food in the pot. And, you know, Michael Palin's looking around at this barely adequate sort of semi-tent thing they're in with not enough food to really feed the 10 people there. But this this gentleman, you know, who would probably be at the bottom of the poverty spectrum is in absolute joy. Yeah. And, and you know, children are happy because they're not being forced into this, you know, industrial machine that we've created as, you know, being drilled you know, to get degrees in computer science and then go and be a slave of some big company. You know, it, it's a miserable existence that they're inheriting, um, but they're, they're, they're forced to comply. So the, the happiness is crushed out of children at a very early age, and mainly by the education system, which is set up for business. It's set up for, for these other things. People don't get education in food, do they? They get trained in things that are useful well, con- for to people consume, who want to get yeah. rich. Consumers, they get trained to be consumers. And workers. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, well, they're, 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 they're trained as slave labour, uh, for, for the rich. But now we're into this interesting stage where artificial intelligence and robotics is replacing nearly all of the, the physical labor. I mean, we've already, most of our construction is done by either robots or large equipment these days. It's not done by, by men with picks and shovels any longer. Um, but in 10, 20 years' time, when you go and consult a doctor, you will be consulting a computer, not a human being, uh, because doctors will be replaced. Because why? Computers are better at diagnosing than doctors are. Um, they're not better at empathy. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're pretty, pretty low on empathy. But you can probably teach them empathy. I mean, the, the Japanese have these nurse bots that speak nicely to old people and wipe their bottoms and things, you know. And, and uh, so what I'm saying is that there won't be any of those jobs traditional jobs available. There won't be checkout chicks, there won't, there won't be, as I say, construction workers. It'll all be done by robots. There won't be miners. I mean, you look at the giant mines. The, the mines of Western Australia are controlled from a control tower in Perth, you know, using all those big trucks that, that carry the iron ore are robots. Uh, the trains that haul the iron ore to the coast are robots. Uh, the things that drill shot holes on the, you know, on the the benches where, where the mine is going are robots. So it's already happening. All those jobs 
You know, I think the average mine has gone from 1,500 jobs down to about 250, and it's going further um, because you can replace nearly all of these tasks. So uh, there are simply not going to be, there's not going to be that kind of work available in the world of the future, the way things are going. And, and business loves that because these robots don't ask to be paid. They don't ask for consideration. You know, <laughs> they don't ask for time off to, to have a baby. You know, um, they're, they're just so much less bother than human beings. Well, I guess it is, um, you know, for want of a better term, it's that the, the machine breakers, the Luddites all over again, right? Like, not saying that we're Luddites for not wanting to embrace some of this technology, but it is, it's that, that removal of the human element. Yeah, Luddism was a, an emotional response, obviously, to the, to the textile revolution in the 18th century. Um, you know, people just smashed the looms, basically, because they were starting to replace cottage industries and, and, and so forth that had flourished for, for centuries or even thousands of years. Um, it, yeah, human, some humans do, do object to progress. Unfortunately, you can't avoid progress. But what I argue is that we need to examine all the technologies, things like AI, things like robotics, things like robo-killers, which are now at work in the wars that are happening around the world, we need to examine all these technologies and ask ourselves, what are the downsides? Before we unleash these technologies, we need to say, what can go wrong? You know, Because as I gave the example of coal at the beginning, coal was a very benign and useful substance back when we were just burning it to warm our homes. But now it's deadly for human, the human future. So we can't afford to burn coal any longer. Now, all the other technologies. The same applies to agriculture. Agriculture was a wonderful technology, you know, for, for, for thousands of years, but now we're doing it on this industrial scale. It is destroying the earth. It's destroying the soils, the wild animals, the whole lot. It's spreading poison, you know. So that, again, is not a sustainable technology. It has to be replaced with a, a more sensitive technology that doesn't cause that sort of damage. So, you know, all of these things, whether they're extant technologies or whether they're new technologies. I mean, let's talk about nanotechnology for a moment. I mean, nanotechnology creates these tiny, tiny weeny particles which get everywhere. They get into your brain. They get from the mother into the embryo. You know, they, 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 once you've sent them out there, you can never call them back. They are a new form of pollution. You know, whether, even if they're just in your golf socks, nanotechnology in your golf socks, you know, to stop them smelling or something like that, but it, those nanoparticles can never be called back. Today... So are we talking like they, gene altering? In their capacity? Well, or DNA gene, altering? Certainly gene damaging. Certainly mm -hmm. gene damaging. I mean, this is a very new field of science. We haven't really, we don't know. Look, all we can go on is what chemicals have done to us. And we know that chemicals are bloody dangerous and that they are poisoning every one of us every single day. Um, this is a new form of chemistry. Uh, it's chemistry at the micro micro level, the nano level, which is billionths of a meter. But, you know, our babies today are born shitting plastic. And plastic's an example of, of nanoparticles because when plastic is in the environment, it keeps on breaking down into smaller and smaller particles. So you take your, your nice fleece jumper that you bought for winter 
and you wash it and several thousand little spear-like particles go down the, uh, the, 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 the plug hole, you know, from out of the washing machine into the water supply. And they spread through the environment. Wherever that water goes, it takes these nanospheres. And, 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 the, and, and they will gather everywhere. So, and the plastic particles in the ocean, you know, break down into smaller and smaller plastic, which gets into the fish, and we eat the fish, and it gets into our brains. So, and that, that cycle has already been demonstrated by scientists. So, you know, we're creating problems for ourselves without even seeing it. Why? Because nanotechnology is very trendy and some people can make a lot of money out of it and they don't want to tell you about the downsides. Mm. Or they're just not exploring them. Like they don't even know because they're not taking the time and energy to do the research. Just not interested. Yeah. Well, if you're, if you're working for industry or even if you're working for somebody like CSIRO or even if you're working for a university and you've got a grant from the ARC, uh, you are not funded to, to look into the downsides. You're funded to create a new nano product, right? You're paid to, to, to deliver one of So even if you, the scientist, have a strong ethic and you don't want to cause any harm to human beings, you don't actually have the resources or the funding to, to ask the question, is this harmful? Well, doesn't that so def just, defeat science? What we said about science was about questioning, right? Was about... Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, well once science has been entrained by industry... It, it, it stops being science and it becomes all about making money. Um, and then it, it can, can, can do dreadful things. So, I mean, all of the problems that we have in the world today um, are, create, are, are the result of science. I mean, chemistry is the senior science, right? Chemistry's been with us for 250 years. At the moment, the, the, our chemical pollution is five times worse than our climate pollution. And it is killing... Around about, of course, it's called, according to the World Health Organization, 13 million people every single year, which is about double the death toll in World War II, right? Annual death toll. So, chemistry is the biggest act, is, is, is causing the biggest act of homicide in human history. Right? If chemistry is that, that bad, imagine how bad nanochemistry is going to be. That's, that's the sort of question we need. A structure that enables us to ask those questions. At the moment, new chemicals are released onto the world market willy-nilly without ever being scrutinised for human safety or environmental safety. Okay, don't take my word for it. That's the United Nations Environment Programme saying that. Uh, so new chemicals, up to 2,000 a year, are being rolled out and we don't know what they're doing to your, to your genes, to your grandkids, to your re ability to reproduce, to your, your gender preference, <laughs> your sexuality, you know, mm -hmm. to your development, uh, your brain. But they're affecting all of those things. You mm. can be sure of that. Well, I guess it's probably a good point at the um, interview to start talking about how we can find some solutions to some of these challenges because, you know, that's the thing. We talked about that amygdala brain that just, you know, is always focusing on the dangers and how to avoid getting killed and how to survive a, a challenging situation. And we're all fed on this, you know, fear coming out of mainstream media to be afraid of everything. But, you know, if we can sort of switch that brain to try and find solutions. So what are some of the strategies we can do? Like I know you've talked about some of the solutions in the beginning of the interview. You talked about farming the deep ocean rather than fishing the deep ocean. So what, what sort of other things can we look at? 
Well, I'd like to wind the clock back about a million and a half years to, to a particular event that happened that long ago, which is the start of all of this stuff. There was a young pre-human walking home in the twilight on a big African hill, and he was wending his way up the pathway. It was getting darker and darker and darker, and he left it a bit late. He was out hunting or trying to show what a, what a lad he was. Uh, he went underneath a tree that was across the, the pathway, and he didn't notice the leopard in the tree. And the leopard took him, and it sunk its teeth into his skull and dragged his body down, it broke his neck, and dragged his body down into its lair to feed its young. And that had been going on for five million years before that. So it was a fairly common event for young pre-humans to get eaten by leopards. How do we know? We found the skull. It's got the leopard's teeth marks on it. Um, what happens in exactly the same layer? Exactly the same layer. And so within a couple of hundred thousand years, humans discover the use of fire. Why did they discover fire? Well, they obviously saw leopards running away from bushfires. And they figured out that leopards are frightened of bushfires, but they weren't. They overcame their own fear of fire. And, and, and they had found a technical, a technological solution, right, to, to the threat of children being eaten by leopards. So they built fires, and it's a lot of hard work maintaining a fire when you've got no matches, right? So this is a million and a half years ago. This is a million years before we became human. We're building a fire, we're stocking it with fuel, we're, we're, we're keeping it going all through the night and things like that. And then, most importantly, we're sitting around it and we're laughing and joking and dancing and sharing ideas and showing the kids how to make stone tools. We're educating ourselves and our brain begins to grow. That is the moment. The minute we started to sit around a fire for four or five hours a day with nothing to do except swap ideas, we start to speak our brain starts to grow. It starts to be difficult for women to have babies because the skull is expanding. So this is the beginning of humanity. It comes out of this one technology, the use of fire. Now, fire was a solution to a deadly problem. We have solved deadly problems many times in the past. Agriculture is a solution to the problem of starvation. Right? The fire brigade that we have today, the SES, is the solution to the problem of bushfires. You know, it, it's, these are ways that we make our world safe. So we can come up with solutions to almost any problem you like. That, that's where I take great encouragement. We are hardened survivors. We've got a million and a half years of practice in coming up with solutions to mortal risks. Now, your seatbelt you put on when you get into the car. To begin with, people, I remember vividly, people whinged about having to wear seatbelts, like they whinged about having to wear masks, you know. But who who complains about seatbelts these days? You just take it for... Well, we've had, you know, time. 30, 40 years of seatbelt trialling and we've shown it works. Yeah, well, we, we, it absolutely it works, just like masks work as well. Um, you know, but there's, there's a minority of people out there spreading disinformation, saying, you know, masks don't work, seatbelts don't work, the earth is flat, blah, blah, blah. There's always people, you know, putting a counterpoint of view and trying to sway others to it, but without any evidence for their point of view. That's the point. They have no testable evidence for their point of view. Now, nothing that, that could describe it as the truth. So when you've got a situation, okay, look, we've we've got fire now. We've we're able to 
make the dark less scary. We can find our way home. We can see the leopard in the tree and avoid getting, um, you know, attacked. Um, we can create a hearth community where you're gathering around something that's comforting and reassuring and then you're, you know, sharing and growing your brain and all of that. So what's what's our fire in this in this period right like we've obviously at the, we've had this technology revolution in the last couple of decades you know like i grew up without the internet as you did and suddenly boom we've got all this technology and it's exponentially growing at a rate we can't even fathom um you know i've got friends at work for uh, google in in seattle and the stuff they told me they're working on would just blow your mind it's you know we're going into a virtual world where there's going to be no hardware so how how do we look at what we took from that very, very early period of pre-human history of, of fire and think about what is our fire now? What, what, what is going to make that change for us to make the next step that isn't self-destructive? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there are two fires, and I'll, I'll talk about both of them. So the first one, you're right. The new fire is the internet and social media, right? Because when we came out of Africa, we splintered into a thousand a million different family groups all over the world. We scattered all over the world. You know, we, we walked from, from, from uh, Ethiopia to Australia in a very short space of time, probably 10,000 years. Well, at least as far as Indonesia, and then from Indonesia to Australia. Um, so, so human beings fragmented at that particular time. Well, it looks like we might have uh, dropped out uh, Julian's call there. I'd say so. Bear with us. He'll probably call us right back. But, yes, uh, chances are I, good. Yeah, I do hope you've been um, enjoying listening to our conversation with Julian Cribb, who is an amazing science author and uh, veteran journalist, and he's uh, definitely teaching me a lot, and I'm sure Scotty as well. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yes. Well, what we might do is we might, what do you say, we go to a bit of music while we wait for Julian to call back, just yeah. so you're not listening to us prattle on? That's right. I'd rather you listen yeah. to Julian Prattle. Do you have any announcements? Um, not that I can think of right now. No, um, nothing that's popped up to mind. But uh, we'll do that. We, we can tell you about what we're going to be doing next week with Catty. Do yeah, you want to talk about Catty? Yeah. Yep. Oh, we want to explain what Catty is, Scotty. Oh, here he is. Nothing to We've do with cats. Him. Oh no, we do have Julian back. Okay, so you just bear with us for a moment. Good Anyway, we will tell you about Catty towards the end of the show, and you can. Um, have some information about next week's show then. All right, okay. we should have Julian back. Do we have you with us, Julian? Yes, apologies. No, I not know. at all. It's actually not uncommon as we talk about live the, radio. not be able to control the technology all the time. So you were talking <laughs> about right technology, cue, yeah, <laughs> technology and, and it being our new fire? Yeah, <laughs> the, the internet and social media, for the first time, we are able to conduct a conversation amongst ourselves as human beings all around the world at the speed of light. For the first time, we are able to share ideas. We are able to discuss problems like climate change or nuclear weapons or something amongst all the nations of the world. So we are, we are evolving into a new creature, a creature that we've created effectively an Earth-sized mind, if you think about it. Something like uh, 5 billion people are on the Internet today. And by the 2030, by 2030, everybody's going to be on the Internet. So it will be possible for every human being to share in this conversation, to learn from one another, to swap ideas, um, to discover you know, how people solve their problems, to share those solutions universally. So and, and the parallel that I draw is that this is like the, the brain of a baby in the womb, in the second trimester, 
of a pregnancy, in the brain of that of that embryo, that infant, the the neurons and the glions and the axons start to join up, and you go from a blob of cells to a creature that is sentient. Um, it can it is capable of logic, feelings, dreams, ideas. So suddenly you've gone, as I say, from. I'm sorry. No, we've still got you there. <laughs> Nearly okay. dropped out again. <laughs> So, so basically, you know, we, 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 we go from an inanimate object to a, a totally animate, sentient object capable of feelings and ideas and logic. And that happens with a, with, with a baby. It is starting to happen with the human species worldwide because we are hooking up at light speed and we are exchanging thoughts and ideas at light speed. Now, there's a lot of rubbish on the Internet. And you've got to be a wise <laughs> consumer to be able to sort through the rubbish and pick out the good stuff. But you've got to be a wise consumer at any time. You know, in the market, you've got to be a wise consumer. Um, so, so, but nevertheless, the internet is the start of the rise of the next type of human species, one that is completely connected around the planet. And that's a very hopeful method. And the other thing that I think is really important is that women are rising out of the background of world history and they're starting to take positions of leadership now it is an absolute fact of history that women do not start wars if there was a woman president of russia today you would not have a war in the ukraine it is men who start wars male governments dictators monarchs and so forth i guess we haven't have to have to do an exception for margaret thatcher and boudicca yeah well, well, well Boudicca had cause. I, I hear that many times, and, and people who say that about Margaret Thatcher uh-huh. don't know anything about her, their, the history, right? Because Margaret Thatcher did not start the Falklands War. The Falklands War was started by three Argentinian generals who invaded the Falklands. And the Falklanders were British citizens, and they called on the British government for help, right? So Thatcher was dragged into that one unwillingly. So, and, and, and even though you might be able to raise examples like Boadicea, you know, got stuck into the Romans and wiped out a, a legion because they happened to rape her and her daughters. But the Romans were not the legitimate government of Britain at the time that she did that. They were invaders. So well, the Iceni had a quite... Um, the Iceni, her tribe. Are quite capable yeah. def- women are quite capable of defending their country. Right. So so whether you're talking about Elizabeth, the first of England, Maria Theresa, um, Catherine, the great of Russia, uh, you can roll right the way through history. Golda Meir of Israel, uh, you know, um, uh, Indira Gandhi mm-hmm. of India. All these women have fought wars, you know, but they've fought defensive wars. Right. They do not start wars. So so uh, the basic point holds that women on the whole do not start wars. If we're going to live in this world, we have to get rid of wars, right? Unless you think that wars are a great idea and it's a good thing to, to get the human population down by slaughtering everybody. Well, that, we would, be, that would be the peaceful. domain of psychopaths, which we have a few of running some countries right now. That's why we need women in charge. Yeah. And women do not cut down forests. Women do not pillage the oceans. Women do not spread poisons like men do. Right, but chemistry spreads poison around the world because it is a male-dominated profession, and men like to solve their their problems quickly without giving thought to the consequences. Women think about the kids and the grandkids. What effect is this going to have on my child? 
on my grandchild. That's a natural mode of thought for women. So they're more cautious about all these super technologies that men keep coming up with. Now, I would willingly concede that back in the 15th century or, or 3,000 years ago, men were terrific. You know, men were great in the Stone Age. Uh, you know, they, they were good in medieval times. You know, you needed a warrior um, with, with a sword and armor and things like that to, to defend your, your tribe against the next door tribe. But in a world of 8 billion people on a resource-stressed planet, that kind of male thuggish leadership is absolutely lethal. It will kill an awful lot of people without necessity. Right, you can see that in Africa today. Largely male-dominated governments are responsible for the last 40 wars in Africa. Not women. Women are the peacemakers in Africa. The women are the people who get dragged in to try to fix the problem after the men have had a, 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 an unsuccessful war. So uh, my, my other shining light is women leaders. If you put women in charge of the world, you will A, have a more peaceful world, and B, we will solve a lot of these big problems a lot quicker. Well, what about population in that regard? <laughs> Great question. Like the women population have already bomb. solved the problem of population, right? When I was born, the average woman had five babies. Today, the average woman has 2.4 babies, and replacement is 2.1 babies. So we're getting very close to zero population growth for the whole human species. Now, admittedly, there are some countries where population growth is still quite high, but this decision to have less babies was not a male decision. It was a female decision. It was women taking leadership of their own lives but making a collective decision to reduce the human population growth. So women have already made that decision, and they didn't ask men to, whether they could do it or not. They just got on and did it. So women have already seen the dangers of overpopulation, and for the last 30, 40, 50 years, they have been reducing the population slowly. We need that to go faster. We need to support those women to give them the family planning tools for the voluntary population reduction that has to take place if humans are going to last on this planet. Well, I think there's some very, very um, successful charities that have realised that this, the solution to most of the problems in these really you know, tr terribly impoverished third world countries is to educate the girls. Like if you if you can get the girls into school, get them into education, prevent them from becoming child brides and, and teenage mothers, it changes everything for that community. Well, well, that that that, that that's part of it. Um, the most important thing is to make sure that, that they have got free contraception available to them, uh, that it is easy to access, and that they're not going to be steered away from it by patriarchal male society or men lecturing them. I mean, almost every government, including our own, subsidises the birth of children or the raising of children. You know, in other words, they're putting out an economic incentive to have a bigger population. Um, why? That's only going to lead to trouble. Well, I guess they're so, still on last century's <laughs> economic kick of we need more workers. Yeah. Well, that, that, that is also one of the biggest absolute furfies. If you look around the world, the countries with the lowest rates of childbirth are the countries that are richest and have had the, 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 the greatest rate of economic advancement. The countries with the most children, the most babies being born, are the poorest countries in the world. The quickest solution to, to um, poverty is to reduce the number of children being born. 
So, so you know, I mean, all of these things. It, all right, real estate agents will tell you they need more people in the country to, to, to pay more money for houses, you know. And, and various little groups will try to exploit the population argument for their own selfish purposes. Okay, so, so and, and, and businessmen who, who tell you that they need more customers, you know, just simply don't understand business because businesses that sell to fewer customers but who are wealthier and can pay more are much more profitable than businesses that sell to a lot of very poor people. Right, so we don't need more population to grow the economy. We need the opposite. Less population will grow the economy. Yeah. So I guess, um, have you heard of Walter Yane's soil carbon sponge? I, I know Walter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain the soil carbon sponge for us? Because that's another big solution we've got coming. Well, you'd better... Get Walter to do it rather than. Oh, me. we have, we have. We just thought we might like your, your version of it, Julian. Yeah, look, um, carbon naturally gets locked up into soil, okay? It gets sucked down there. Uh, that's what we call fertility, actually. It's the carbon in the soil, the amount. So if you want your soil to be nice and, and fertile, you try to get more carbon in. You put more compost into your soil if you're a home gardener. Um, so the agricultural system that we've got at the moment that tries to replace nutrients in soil with artificial fertilisers is not very good. If you can have a growing system that puts more carbon into the soil, you will have a more fertile soil and you will have less carbon in the air because the soil itself will have pulled it down. Now, how does it get down there? It gets down into the soil via the root systems of growing plants and trees. So trees tend to lock up carbon for centuries because they have deep root systems that take the carbon out of the air and put it deep in the soil profile. Uh, annual crops like wheat do absolutely nothing uh, for carbon lockup because uh, you know they, they've got shallow root systems and they get uh, chopped down you know at harvest time. So the carbon cycling is very very fast in a wheat system, but in in an agroforestry system it's very slow and you are locking up. Uh, and one of the major solutions to climate change is to re-aforest, replant the forests on about a half of the Earth's land area. Now, you can't do that while we're still farming that area, so we've got to convert our food system, as I mentioned before, to urban food production and deep ocean food production. And then you put back the trees, and the trees will naturally draw down carbon. It'll take a while, you know, it'll take, take a few centuries, but they will naturally return the earth to the natural carbon balance that we had about 50 or 100 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, so what are some of the other solutions that you got out there? Well, I, I, I would like every country to ban nuclear weapons. That's an obvious one, isn't it? You know, then we wouldn't all be sitting here quaking in our boots in case somebody makes a stupid mistake. And Stupid mistakes have happened, let me tell you, about two or three dozen times since nuclear weapons were invented. And the world has nearly gone to nuclear war that many times. You just don't know about them. They don't tell you about them. So, so, so a ban on all nuclear weapons. We need to get rid of the chemicals that are poisoning the earth at the moment. So we really need a big effort, really pushed by consumers. Buy nothing that poisons your grandkids. Buy nothing. No, whatever it is, do not buy plastics. Do not buy things that, that affect, you know, that poison your home. No. Uh, do not buy cheap furniture. Do not buy... Any, if, you, if you do that, 
you will encourage the, the good companies, the green companies, the people who produce, I don't know, organic cotton or whatever it is, uh, to produce more of it. And you will penalize the, co the companies that poison the earth. So, so you know, that's another um, absolute major one. Mm, I guess you could frame that as never buy anything that hasn't recently been alive and don't use anything that can't rot. Yeah. Recycling. We've spoken about the economy earlier. The most important thing is to create a circular economy. Uh, a circular economy is one where everything gets reused, everything. There is no pollution coming out of the machine. Basically, everything... So nowadays, you know, once upon a time, you used to throw your mobile phone in the bin when you were finished with it. Now you take it back to, uh, you know, the, 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 the manufacturer and they swap it for a new one, and they take the metals out of it and put them in a new phone. So recycling is starting to be a thing in society, but we need to get to 100%. We need to recycle the water, we need to recycle timber, building materials, clothing, the whole bloody lot. Nutrients especially, we need to recycle everything that comes out of our bottoms, everything that we throw in the, in the, in the landfill, all the organic waste from our gardens and things needs to be recycled into food. And then we will have a renewable food supply. And that is the answer. At the moment, the, the current food supply is based on waste, total waste and destruction. We have to have a renewable food supply. So the, the circular economy, or the donut economy, as it is sometimes called, is the major answer for how we motivate people to do these things. Hmm. And I guess that's opposed to the, the linear sort of economy, isn't it? Like, well, that's destroying us at the moment, and we're going to run out of stuff sooner or later, and people are going to starve as a result. Yeah. I guess I, I go back to that same question I keep asking during this interview, which is we have the solutions. It's just getting the powers that be to implement them, and then Scotty has a solution for that. We all become a cooperative, and we just get rid of the powers that be. Well, if we're providing for our own needs and paying ourselves for it, then... We're not paying them for it, and we can decide how to do it the right mm -hmm. way. I mean, I think quintessentially human beings do, like, you know, normal functioning, healthy functioning human beings do want to make the right choices. They do want choices that are going to be good for the whole. Um, they don't, they're not psychopathic. They don't want to be um, looking after, you know, the 0.1% why everybody else is flatting around, you know, not surviving. So the the will of the the collective is there. It's just how do we how do we get the people that are blocking it from being implemented to allow us to implement it or to to enable us to implement it regardless of their their will. Well, you have to understand who is blocking it and why. The government that we have we elect in Australia and the government that they elect in Britain and America and elsewhere are not governments for us. They're, they're governments basically for the fossil fuels lobby. Fossil fuels industry and petrochemical industry is worth $7 trillion a year. It is the third largest economy on earth. It has manufactured, it's got large lie factories that pump out lies that are spread around the planet by people like the Murdoch press and so forth. Um, and and these are also in the ear of all the governments. So there, it, it, we're talking about a new phenomenon called petrofascism, basically, which is these people want to control all the governments in the world, not just one or two of them. They, they control Vladimir Putin, and they are behind his push into Ukraine. They want to control America. They control the Republican Party already and part of the Democrat Party. They control the Australian government. 
you know, why, why does the Australian government keep pretending to do something about climate change when in reality it does nothing but, but burn, burn more coal and, and oil? Or opening up you know, the Galilee Basin is worse than nothing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, the, the, whatever their mouths say, you cannot trust them because they are in the pay, in the pocket of these other people. And so basically this $7 trillion enterprise, um, you know, the petro-fascists, own most of the governments in the world. Not just ours, many governments in Africa, many governments in South America, many governments in Europe, and so forth. But Europe is a bit more resilient to this, but Australia is gone. We we don't have a democracy any longer. Now, how do you deal with that? The answer is you do need an educated populace that will work against these things. Because if, through the internet, worldwide, people are making the right decisions about what to buy and what not to buy, who to vote for and who not to vote for, if they're making those right decisions, they can correct the machine. Now, this is the optimistic scenario, right? So that people become more informed. Every time they spend a dollar, they are voting for their own future and the future of their grandkids. If they think that when they're at the supermarket, uh, when they're in the clothing store or wherever, they think, I'm only going to buy stuff that is going to give my grandchildren a future. That is going to send an economic signal like you would not believe that no company can ignore, that no government can ignore. So people have to vote with their feet or their wallets um, because their actual vote, the vote they cast at the ballot box doesn't matter because their government has already been suborned um, by by the petro-fascists. So, so th- this is the difficulty. You can't change the nature of the government. You can change the government, but you can't change its nature. So even if we change the government at the next election, we'll probably only get more of the same, unfortunately, because the coal industry runs them both. <clears throat> so, so, you know, it is how we live our lives that has to change and how we share that knowledge with 8 billion fellow citizens of the earth. Mm, so you're that's talking... the optimistic scenario. Mm. What's the pessimistic scenario? Yeah, the pessimistic scenario is that everything collapses, civilization fails, and and we all go back to sort of tribalism and uh, and mass slaughter. So and and that is quite likely to happen, but it'll may happen over a period of forty or fifty years. So there'll be plenty of warning. So there'll be some mass slaughters to give us time to wake up to what is going on. That, that's the way I interpret the way things are going. But you can't predict these mass slaughters simply because they depend upon human behaviour and you can't forecast human behaviour. No, because it's reactionary, right? And you can go any direction when it's reactionary. Well, it's also consensual, you know, in a way. I mean, human beings react at the time, the way they react at the time. And you, you can't forecast, you know, how the majority is going to go on, on any given issue. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm hopeful, you know, and, I, and this is why we do this radio show. Why Scotty and I spend twenty hours a week unpaid to get all this information out there because we, you know, we really believe that human beings have the intrinsic wisdom if we can just get them to pay attention to it. Well, well, the the the, the word there is wisdom, hmm. and what is wisdom? Wisdom is understanding what you've seen before gathering it together with all the knowledge that you've got today and coming up with a solution to a major existential threat that faces you. So the the old fire that we came up with was a solution to the threat. Uh, so, So, you know, that is wisdom. At the moment, we are a knowledgeable species with lots of technology, but we're not wise in any way, shape or form. Yes, we just think we're so, clever, uh, but we're not wise, as you said. 
Yeah, I, I don't think that we deserve the title Homo sapiens, and I have called for humanity to be renamed and for there to be a worldwide conversation about the nature of the creature we have become and what our name should be. Because at the moment, we are on a course for a self-destruction. Mm. So, so, you know, and it's going to be quite hard to swing us off that course. Well, that's one Am of the... I optimistic? Uh, sorry? Sorry, I was just uh, riffing on that, that uh, Homo economicus is one of our self-delusions, mm. which is, is pushed a lot in the mainstream, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So we've got to overcome a lot of beliefs that simply aren't real um, about what we are and, and what our future is. Uh, we have to have an informed uh, view of what our future, what our reality, our present reality is and what our future could be. Uh, and, and we have to solve the problems that we've got. And all the solutions are technically feasible. This, this is, you know, I'm writing a book at the moment of all the solutions that we need to adopt, both at global level and also at individual level. What we can all do as individuals to guarantee the survival of our grandkids. Now, we may not achieve the survival of all of them. You know, we might lose half the human population in the mess we've created. But humanity will survive. But if we don't pay attention to this, then humanity will not survive because at the end of the day, we will make the world uninhabitable by large animals, either by raising the temperature past the level that our bodies can tolerate or even, worst case scenario, turning the world back to an, an anoxic condition that it was in for three billion years when nothing but uh, single-celled microbes can survive. And we are starting to do that at the moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we need to, to be very, very cautious. Um, and we need to be aware of these. We need to be educated about these things. Yeah, so you've, you've been creating a couple of organisations as well around this sort of theme, haven't you? Yeah, the Council for the Human Future, which is chaired by John Hewson, um, is basically, it's, its job is, is to share these ideas that there are these 10 big threats to humans. It is the biggest emergency we have ever faced as a species. It deserves our attention. Uh, we need a global plan for human survival. Now, at the moment, no country on earth has a plan for human survival. Not one. Australia hasn't got a plan for human survival. America hasn't. Britain hasn't. Russia hasn't. You know, they aren't even thinking about the problem. So this is the difficulty. We've got to make everybody aware so that the public at large, the Chinese public, the Indian public, the European public, demands that we focus on the need for humans to survive. If we don't do that, then humans won't survive. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. So the, the Council for the Human Future is about sharing the facts about the threats that surround us and the solutions that we can adopt. And that, mm. let, believe you me, these solutions are practical and easy to adopt. Mm. So we are getting close to the end of our time here, Julian. So I would like to make sure that people, if they would like to learn more about your work and about the Council for the Human Future and perhaps have a look at where they can get your books and your wonderful photography, which we forgot to mention, you're a brilliant photographer, nature photographer. There's a wonderful gallery people can look at. Where can they go to get this information? Right, well, the Council for the Human Future is just simply humanfuture.org, humanfuture, one word, dot org. Uh, so they can look there on the background to everything we've talked about today. Um, if they're interested in my writings in particular, uh, just simply www.juliancrib.net. 
uh, and there's a whole lot of my books and articles on there. Um, and uh, if they're interested in the topic of how we are going to survive the 21st century, uh, then I've got a blog as well, which is uh, Julian Crib one word, dot blog. Wonderful. Um, two B's in the crib, isn't there? Yes. Crib, crib with two B's for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. J-U-L-I-A-N-C-R-I-B-B, all one word, dot blog. Wonderful. And I have to mention when I did look up Council for Human Future, one of my old colleagues is uh, one of your board members. It's uh, uh, Professor Robin Alders. So uh, Robin and I worked together in the 1980s, so long time ago, but I haven't haven't been in touch with her. I was overseas for 25 years and it was lovely to see her face and her name up there. Yeah, well, Robin, as you know, is is, a, is an expert on, on global food mm-hmm. issues and uh, she's a major contributor on this topic about how we develop a sustainable uh, a food supply that doesn't destroy itself, yes. you know, that is not driven by greed, but, but driven by feed. And mm-hmm. the, the feed, I like that. <laughs> that is a good catch Beautiful. line. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time there, Julian. wanted to thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning. And, I, and as Scotty said, I think we've probably got um, more than one show we could do with you if you're inclined to join us again in the future. Happy to do so. Wonderful. All right. Thanks very much. That was Julian Cribb talking to us about a matter of survival. and uh, we. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.